Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everybody. My name is Mark Swisslocky. I'm the program head of the history program at NYU Abu Dhabi. Uh, thank you for braving the storm tonight, and thank you to the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for making this event possible. It's been a few semesters since the history program here at NYU Abu Dhabi has invited speakers um, to the Institute to give public lectures. We used to do so under a rubric we called Globalizing Histories, a term we chose to signal our program's commitment to the development of an innovative global history program. We maintain that commitment today and this year we're undertaking some curricular reform to enhance our ability to carry out our objectives in teaching and research. We started out in 2010 with a somewhat novel program design. Uh, our curriculum was divided up into ocean systems. So we divided the world up into ocean systems. There were four, Asia Pacific, Atlantic, Indian Ocean, and the Mediterranean world. People would come to us and say, I wanna take a course on African history, Chinese history, and we'd say, well, you could take your course in the Atlantic world or the Indian Ocean world or the Asia Pacific. We were trying to um, uh, rethink the space of history. Um, in particular, uh, we were trying to de-particularize place, by which I mean we were trying not to tell history as if it was made up of particular units to be studied separately, like Africa or Europe. Instead, we were hoping to emphasize the history of connections within and across four, our four ocean systems, four long-standing zones of human interaction and imagination. We maintain that, frag that framework today. Um, and starting next year, we're beginning a new rotation of courses called Regional Perspectives on Global History. The idea behind these new courses is that world or global history may be taught and should be taught from many different locations. And that the choice of location shapes the production of knowledge. In short, globalization should not be mistaken for westernization. It does not start in 1492. And we can tell stories of global history and globalization that start, for example, in Africa. Starting a, a story of world history in Africa may not seem like such a radical idea or a radical departure from professional practice. It might not seem like such a hard thing to think of, <laughs> um, but there was, however, once a time when professional historians, especially, but not only those in Europe and North America, which, who considered Africa to be a place without history. This view of Africa was intellectually related it derived some of its vocabulary from a series of influential lectures in the philosophy of history by the German philosopher Hegel. There's a clear sense among most historians, I think, that Hegel's intellectual influence is or should be over and that the idea of Africa as a place without history is ridiculous. All people have history. Be that as it may, it's still not the case intellectually that we seem to recognize that all places. I mean, institutionally, I'm sorry. 
start over. We may recognize that all places have history intellectually, but we still don't do it institutionally. The leading history departments in the United States, for example, still barely teach African history. Three top programs, one of them contains 55 professors of history, two Africanists. The second leading program, more than 80 professors, one Africanist. The third leading program, again, more than 80 professors, two Africanists. We may know that all people have history, but we still don't staff our programs as if that were the case. I'm happy to say that here at NYU Abu Dhabi, we have nine historians and two Africanists. <laughs> so we're already on par <laughs> with the top three programs uh, in the United States. I give the United States as an example, not because I think it's universal, but because we often have conversations here about NYU Abu Dhabi and whether or not it's an American institution. And in this regard, at least, I'm happy to say it's not. How we got here has a lot to do with some of our intellectual predecessors, and Paul Lovejoy is one of them. And so I'm really happy to be able to invite him here to speak to you today. He's going to be with us here all week as the first NYU Abu Dhabi history program historian in residence, and we're delighted that he's able to join us. He is a Canadian historian in African history and African diaspora history. He's currently a distinguished research professor and Canada research chair at York University. He has published over 30 books and 100 articles and chapters and books on African history and African diaspora history. His most recent book, Jihad in West Africa during the Age of Revolutions, argues that the conception of the Atlantic world has virtually ignored continental Africa, which thereby distorts an understanding of the emergence of a European world order. He's the perfect speaker to help us communicate to you what we're trying to do as historians, not just intellectually, but also institutionally. And I would like to point out that if you're interested, there are copies of this book, which was uh, just issued, available um, outside for purchase after the event, at a special discount only available tonight. Paul Lovejoy is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, director of the Harriet Tubman Institute for Research. Oh, no, he's not that anymore. Uh, he's formerly a member of the UNESCO Slavery Project. He's editor of the Harriet Tubman series on the African diaspora for Africa World Press and has been awarded an honorary degree, doctor of the University of University of Stirling in 2007, the President's Research Award of Merit at York University in 2009, the Distinguished Africanist Award by the University of Texas at Austin in 2010, the Lifetime Achievement Award in 2011 from the Canadian Association of African Studies, and the Teaching Award from the Faculty of Graduate Studies, York University in 2012. My chronology stops there. I imagine more awards and distinctions have come since 2012. Please join me in welcoming Professor Paul Lovejoy back uh, to Abu Dhabi. Um, but for the first time, we get uh, to learn from him uh, on this campus. Please uh, join us. Thank you very much, Mark. I'm very glad to be here. I was here once before because my son graduated from here last spring. And well, that was my first time here. I want to um, take you as quickly as I can through a 
the story of a man's life that I think um, you you might find very interesting. Mark's going to raise his hand when I have five minutes left because I could talk about this man for um, several hours, quite frankly. Uh, he's a fascinating individual. Uh, he comes from uh, what's now Nigeria. He ended up uh, having a very distinguished military career in the American Civil War. So he's a very unusual person. In no way do I want to suggest that his life or his odyssey is typical, uh, but it does allow me to do certain types of things in terms of the work that I'm I'm doing right now. One is, relates to the book that just published, Jihad in West Africa during the Age of Revolution, because this man is a part of that. Uh, and second, I'm currently working on a, a whole series of biographies and working with a team of researchers that are working on uh, biographies of individuals who were born in West Africa and who at, for periods of their life, happened to suffer the tragedy, tragedy of being enslaved. Um, Muhammad Ali Saeed was one of them. This is a picture of him in, in 1867 in a Union Army uniform when he was a sergeant. So you know what he looks like. This is where he came from here. His father was a general, but he was enslaved. His mother came from here, which happens to be the area today where Boko Haram is operating. Uh, and on another occasion here this week, I'll talk more about that. The jihad that was formed created this enormous state. For those of you who don't know 19th century, uh, geography. This is largely the country of Nigeria, Cameroon, Niger, and uh, uh, Benin, just so that you have a sense. The Sokoto Caliphate was the, at the time, the second largest Muslim country in the world after the Ottoman Empire. Uh, he came from neighboring Borno, which was also a Muslim state and had been a Muslim state for approximately 900 years. Uh, his father worked uh, for this man, uh, Sheikh Al-Kanami, uh, who established the reform government of Borno and appointed his uh, uh, Muhammad Ali Saeed's father as his leading general. He was a slave official, his father, and therefore technically Muhammad Ali uh, Saeed also was a slave, although he had been brought up in the palace and was extremely well educated uh, and was, uh, as you will find out, quite smart. Uh, this was the capital of Borno at the time that he lived there, Kukawa, uh, which still exists. It's north of Maiduguri. His mother came from uh, Margi area to the south. Uh, these images give you examples of this. I put this particular individual into this slideshow uh, because he was an extremely famous German diplomat, a geographer, historian who worked for the British government and crossed the Sahara. And uh, my guy, Muhammad Ali Said, actually met him in Kukawa and then later met him again in London. Uh, and it's one of the tiny details that helps to establish the authenticity of Muhammad Ali Said's autobiography, which he published in Memphis, Tennessee in 1871. He 
uh, Muhammad Ali was a, as a teenager, turned out to be a, a not a very good teenager. At least he didn't li listen to his mother when she told him not to go with friends hunting in the bush. And he went hunting in the bush and he got kidnapped. And that's how he ended up in a second level of slavery. Unlike the slavery he was in as the son of a father who was a general and a governor, he was now just a trade slave and was sent across the Sahara, not across the Atlantic. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk and use him as an example here is because I'm very aware that the student body here at NYU Abu Dhabi comes from so many different countries. We're going to follow this man as he goes through so many different countries. <clears throat> he was taken first to Katsina, which was one of the major cities of the Sokoto Caliphate, where he was sold to a trans-Saharan merchant who took him to Tripoli. Uh, he traveled through the Sahara through and, and comments in his autobiography about many of the places that he went to and what he saw and what he did and who he met. Uh, he ended up in Mazurk, uh, <clears throat> which was under the Ottoman uh, um, Empire at the time uh, and was sold to a, 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 an official, one of the soldiers in the army uh, who actually uh, then presented him as a gift to his father in Tripoli. Uh, they were Albanians. Uh, his father was a tobacco merchant. Uh, just to give you a, an example, of, uh, uh, some indication of where he's going to go, he's crossed the Sahara. He's ending up here in Tripoli, uh, where his master is a tobacco merchant. He is taken on pilgrimage uh, to Mecca, although he's not allowed to finish as a slave. He's not allowed to finish the last rites, and so therefore, technically, he does not become an al-Hajj. Uh, he then continues and goes to Yemen. He goes back through Egypt to Libya, ends up in Smyrna, in here in Southern Ottoman Empire, and then, and then is sold to, uh, which I'll show you in a minute, to uh, a very high government official in Istanbul, uh, who presents him as a present uh, to a Russian diplomat who takes him to the Crimea, uh, where he learns Russian. Now he already knows Mandara, Hausa, Kanuri, Arabic, Turkish, and he's learning Russian. The book he writes his autobiography in is English. That's his 11th language. So he then ends up in Russia. You're going to see him. I'm going to follow him all through Western Europe before I take him across the Sahara, across the Atlantic Ocean, uh, where, as I've already indicated, he ends up uh, as a sergeant. Uh, in the 55th Massachusetts Regiment, which was an all-black regiment in the American Civil War. <clears throat> so in Tripoli, uh, he, he worked uh, for his master in this market, and this is the entrance to the market. Uh, these are not the pictures that uh, suggest what it was like in, in the 19th century, because uh, one of the problems was that his master, after he took him to Mecca, um, came back to discover that the market had burned down and, and his tobacco store and all of his wealth was lost, which is why he had to end up selling him uh, to, uh, uh, to, uh, <clears throat> to a merchant uh, in Smyrna. Uh, but when he went to Mecca, he went through Bulak in Cairo, uh, came back, as I suggested. He ultimately ended up being the 
uh, personal slave of this man, Mustaf uh, Rasid Pasha, uh, who was an extremely important Ottoman official and is credited as being the chief architect of the Tanzimat reforms uh, for the Ottoman government after 1839. Uh, it was this man who then gave, uh, uh, passed him on to another member of the Ottoman elite, uh, who was also a member of the Council of the Tanzimat, uh, was foreign minister of the Ottoman government uh, between 1858 and 1860. It's very unclear because there's a problem. Uh, as a high government official, uh, <clears throat> as a high government official, the, uh, it was impossible for an Ottoman official to present a slave uh, to somebody else, especially to somebody who was not a Muslim. Uh, so therefore, in effect, Muhammad Ali Said had to have been freed at this time uh, for this man, Prince Alexander Menshikov, uh, who was the Russian ambassador to the Ottoman court uh, to, to take possession, in effect, of Muhammad Ali Said, uh, which he did. Uh, uh, Menshikov uh, took, uh, took Said to uh, Odessa, uh, where Said was, uh, learned Russian uh, in his own account. We, we believe this or not, but remember, in the end, he knows fluently, 11 languages at least. He claims he learned Russian in three weeks. Uh, Menshikov had to leave uh, uh, Istanbul because of the deteriorating relations between Russia and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and he took Said there to St. Petersburg, uh, where Menshikov himself then became commander-in-chief of the Russian forces in the Crimean War. Uh, our hero, uh, however, did not join Menshikov uh, in, uh, in the Crimea, but instead um, went to work as a valet for this man, uh, Trobetskoy, uh, who in himself was another Russian prince and indeed extremely important uh, in Russian history. Uh, he uh, was the founder of the Moscow Conservatory of Music. And he was a leading official, of course, a leading diplomat. And it was with uh, Introvatskoy that uh, Said was converted, or at least nominally converted, uh, to the Russian Orthodox Church, where he was given the name at baptism of Nicholas. And from then on, he was known as Nicholas Said. Uh, rather than Muhammad Ali Said. Uh, he was baptized at this church in Riga, in Latvia, uh, before going on an extensive tour of Western Europe. He, we've been able to follow exactly, in many cases, even uh, getting pictures of what the hotels were that he stayed in and the different places that he went. Uh, this he stayed in the Victoria Hotel in Baden-Baden, Germany. Uh, this is a picture from 1880, but he was there, of course, in the 1850s. Uh, he went with um, his, his mentor employer, 
uh, to Italy. He spent a lot of time in Rome, and particularly in the uh, in the company of of, Car of Cardinal Antonelli, uh, who was the principal assistant to the Pope. Uh, and uh, in his autobiography, writes a lot about the intellectual uh, interaction that he had in the context of both Italy and in Germany. He learned to uh, love to appreciate uh, classical music. Uh, he went to many, many uh, to theater. Uh, it's very clear that his command and his ability to uh, understand uh, the cultural heritage of, a, of another society that was not his own was incredibly uh, sophisticated. Uh, he read widely in Russian and French. And French, too, was another language that he claims that he learned to, learned to speak fluently without an accent in a mere three weeks. He was taught that in St. Petersburg by his mentor, who uh, obviously planned to take him uh, on his travels through Western Europe. He stayed in, in Paris on several occasions at this hotel, the Hotel Mirabeau, which is not very far from the Eiffel Tower. Uh, on this street, uh, again, he provides amazing uh, descriptions of his experiences there, the people that he met, and the type of company that he was allowed to keep. Because he was the valet to somebody who was very important, uh, he was always in public meetings, he was always around, uh, and obviously this young man uh, was extremely intelligent, not only because of his fluency in languages, uh, and the reason that he was kept on as a valet uh, was because of his, uh, uh, of his fantastic ability to speak, to talk, uh, to uh, interact with people that were uh, far above his station. Although in a certain sense, since his father uh, himself, uh, Barkagana, uh, in, back in Borno, had been such an important dignitary, this wasn't really, in a sense, unusual. He spent time in Hanover Square in London, uh, and this was when he learned English. This would have been in about 1857, and it's at this point that he ran into Heinrich Barth, who I showed the earlier picture of, uh, who was in London at the exact same time at the Royal Geographical Society, talking about his travels in sub-Saharan Africa and reporting back on the, the government of the Sokoto Caliphate and the government of Borno. And it was this uh, a chance meeting uh, uh, at, in, in London, uh, which um, uh, Saeed mentions in his autobiography, which could not have meant anything to anybody, because no one who knew who Heinrich Barth was in North America. And why would he include this? Well, he did for his own reasons. But for the historian, it's wonderful, because it provides a certain types of authenticity to the whole account uh, that uh, was being unraveled in the autobiography. It was in London that he made a decision uh, that he didn't want to travel anymore and he wanted to return home uh, to Borno. He wanted to see his mother. He wanted to return home. He intended to travel back through the Ottoman Empire and cross the Sahara again uh, and, he, and he assumed quite rightly, that he would no, have no difficulty in doing so. As a result, he moved into what was called the Stranger's Home on the West India Dock in London, which is where uh, uh, um, people who were relatively poor 
uh, lived before they started to travel wherever they were going to go. And so he was very definitely set in 1857 uh, to return to Borno in, in what's now northern Nigeria. But he didn't go. Instead, he was hired as a valet by a Dutch um, aristocrat who just at that moment married a, a very distinguished uh, English lady who was quite wealthy. And um, uh, Saeed was convinced to be hired again as a valet to go with the couple on their honeymoon. And that honeymoon would take him across the Atlantic Ocean to the Caribbean, to Suriname, to a number of other islands in the Caribbean uh, with the couple before the couple then ended up going to uh, uh, actually returning to North America because, uh, oops, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. This is where he stayed at the Paddington Hotel in London as well. Um, and, and when he first went to New York before they went to, first went to North America before uh, going on to the Caribbean, uh, the couple and Saeed uh, were in New York City uh, in actually Union Square, which of course is very close to where New York University is located in New York, uh, just to the south in Washington Square. And, and they went to uh, a service at a church that was an abolitionist church in which the Reverend George Cheevers uh, was the minister to hear him give a, uh, a sermon that was condemning slavery in North America. And this was in 1860. Um, Said does not write about this in the autobiography, but it was written about extensively in the New York newspapers at the time. And the reason it was written about extensively is because his, uh, his, his employer and wife, made the great mistake in this church, even though it was an abolitionist church, of having their servant sit immediately behind them in the church while there was actually a section in the church, a separate section in the church, where black people were supposed to sit, which was in the balcony. And they were actually expelled from the church, an abolitionist church. And his employer was extremely furious about this and made a big case about it. Uh, and it got into the newspapers as such for that reason. Um, then they went on their Caribbean tour and came back. We've been able to follow him through a variety of documents, not just his autobiography, because this man, because of the people he was connected with, has left an amazing paper trail uh, so that we can figure out uh, what he was doing, verify what he says he was doing, and so on. So... This, for example, is the New York passenger list for a ship that goes to um, the Caribbean that they were on, and on it, it lists him as, it lists him as Nicholas Said, Said wrongly listing up as his place, birth of place as Turkey when it was not, but that's understandable. Um, when the couple came back from the Caribbean, they continued a North American tour. They went to Sarasota Springs. They went to Niagara Falls. They went to Toronto. They ended up in Ottawa. And they stayed in this hotel, the British Hotel, it was known as, in a town called Almer, uh, which is just, op just opposite Ottawa on the Ottawa River, 
uh, is now in the in the city of Hull. Uh, this hotel, this building, still stands uh, in Almer, in Hull, and this is where he and his current employer parted ways. Our Dutch um, uh, employer and his wife, they turned out to be uh, charlatans of a particular type. Uh, they left Saeed in the hotel with all their luggage, and they disappeared. And Saeed stayed there for about two months, and since he couldn't pay the bill, they confiscated all of the luggage, including the Turkish outfits that he had to wear that made him look so Turkish and so Muslim in a certain kind of way, which was his costume that he had to wear. And he was kicked out of the hotel, needless to say, because he didn't have any money. And at that point, he uh, went to Ogdensburg, which is on the St. Lawrence River, and got his, and worked his way on a steamer and went to Detroit. Uh, in Detroit, uh, he got a job, believe it or not, he got a job teaching French, French, to African Americans. And this was in about 1860, 61 at this point. Uh, he, in Detroit, he met the Reverend George Duffield, who uh, was the preacher at the Protestant Church, a Presbyterian church, who coincidentally he had happened to meet, had met before in the Adriatic Sea when he was on his journey from Istanbul to Moscow. I have no idea what language they spoke, but because at this time, Saeed only spoke Turkish, Arabic, and the Sub-Saharan African languages, and Russian. So they must have spoken in Russian. Now, how Duffield ever knew Russian, I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, Saeed shows up on his doorstep in Detroit, and Duffield takes him in and gets him a job teaching, uh, which he continued to do until he enlisted in the 55th Massachusetts Regiment uh, and then fought in the Civil War. Uh, the 55th Massachusetts uh, Regiment had a very active um, um, military operation in the Civil War. He was part of the uh, occupying army of Charleston uh, when the Union forces took Charleston. He, uh, another example, very bad from the web the picture of what the 55th Massachusetts Regiment looked like. And as I said, he was a sergeant, although in the course of uh, the, after the occupation of, of Charleston, he consciously gave up his position as a sergeant uh, because he wanted to work in the medical corps, which is what he did. Uh, he worked in the medical corps because the treatment, the medical treatment of black troops in particular was so atrocious uh, that he felt that he was needed in that capacity much more than as being a sergeant, which was the highest level that a black could achieve in the Union Army was the level of sergeant. <clears throat> he, when the Civil War ended, he became, uh, he helped to register voters, uh, that is former slaves, uh, in Berkeley County, just to the north of Charleston, uh, and after that, he went on to found a number of schools in Georgia and in Alabama during the Reconstruction period. Uh, he was a 
He was a public speaker. He spoke in many occasions. He's reported on in newspaper after newspaper, uh, depending upon the political orientation of the newspaper. Of course, what he says is either attacked or it was uh, praised. Uh, those who were pro-South and anti-North uh, obviously pictured him as, a, as, as the charlatan that his Dutch employer really was, while those who were in favor of him, such as Cincinnati newspapers, for example, reported at great length about how he talked and what a great speaker he was and, and how he really was interested in education. And he continued to teach school as well as found schools uh, <clears throat> over the next several years. <clears throat> In 1867, he published the first abbreviated autobiography uh, in the Atlantic Monthly, which was, was, and indeed in many ways still continued to be for a long time after, a very important uh, North American magazine. Uh, and then uh, he moved out of Alabama uh, and moved up to uh, Brownsville, Tennessee. And Brownsville, Tennessee is uh, actually a, uh, the... The town, the outskirts of the town, is where uh, Tina Turner is born. And hence, if you see the movie that's going to come out of this story, we know what the theme song will be. It will be, we don't need another hero. Because this is our hero, this guy. He taught school there. <clears throat> Many people thought, have thought, have written about him, thought that he died in um, Brownsville, Tennessee, although in fact he didn't. Uh, I don't know when he died. He certainly seems to have lived on uh, as late as 1897. <clears throat> he has a daughter that survived him by the name of Nancy, uh, who then we subsequently lose sight of as well. Uh, but you get the idea in terms of what he did. And he invested in, um, uh, he put money in his bank in Florida that was a Freedmen's Bureau uh, and here we have a uh, uh, we have um, records of it. He became friends with several very prominent uh, African Americans who were important in the in the Reconstruction area era, including uh, this man Benjamin Franklin Randolph, who was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan in 1868. <clears throat> and this man Jonathan, Jonathan Jasper Wright was also assassinated. Uh, and considering what Saeed was doing, going around the countryside and giving lectures and founding school, it's actually quite amazing that he himself was not assassinated. He ended up for a period in southern Alabama. <clears throat> we know that by in, in 1873, two years after he published his autobiography, uh, he married uh, at least two women. Uh, about two months apart. We don't know whether the first one died before he married the second one or anything, but nonetheless, we do have records that he married two women in Alabama in the same year. And we know that those women, we don't know very much about them. We, we do know they have to have been black because in Alabama at the time, you couldn't register a marriage uh, between a white and a black. And since these marriages were registered, therefore, the women had to be Black. We don't think that Nancy, the daughter, was the daughter of either of those women. We think that she's the daughter 
of a, of a teenage girl that he had an affair with in Georgia while he was setting up a school there. So that we actually know an amazing amount about this. This is the Freedman's bank records from Tallahassee, Florida, which shows um, his record. And with an interesting, wonderful comment <clears throat> that's there, uh, that identifies who he is. He says he's a teacher. Uh, and it's noted that this is the wonderful Nicholas Saeed Doubtless. So we had a reputation within the black community, within the Freedmen uh, Bureau's um, uh, organization, uh, a type of recognition that, of course, has been completely lost, suppressed in the history of the United States because this man is virtually unknown in the history of the United States. Uh, in Alabama, <clears throat> he wrote a number of letters to this man, William C. Oates, <clears throat> who was uh, a Confederate officer uh, who in some ways became somewhat of a mentor and protected him apparently and who subsequently became governor of Alabama uh, uh, in the 1890s. Uh, we don't know very much about that relationship or why um, Saeed uh, would, other than for his own self-protection, uh, seek out uh, Confederate officers, former Confederate officers, uh, who just as well might have turned him over to the Ku Klux Klan as to protect him. This is Brownsville, Tennessee, uh, which he moved to by, uh, by 1880. Uh, we don't know when he left. So let me give you uh, just a few, I have a few minutes left, I think. Uh, let me give you just a a couple of things that I want to say to, that you can take away as to why this guy's life is important and what it means in a, in a different kind of Because obviously what we see here is we don't see slavery. Even though he was born a slave, even though his father was a, an officially a, a slave, and even though he fought slavery in the United States, what we see here is we see an individual we see a, an individual who had a real life, who had his own specific history. And that's one of the reasons why I'm working on biographies, and this biography is merely an example, perhaps an unusual one, of the kinds of work that can be done. Because the way this topic of slavery has been dealt with, and continues to be dealt with in a very great way, uh, in the literature, in the scholarly literature, in the public mind, uh, is as if the individuals who were enslaved didn't have personalities, didn't have their own lives, uh, didn't have uh, a sense of values of themselves and so on. And in this case, you, you don't see this at all. You don't see a slave. You see a person. And the reason we're working on biographies and we're working on the numbers of biographies that we have from West Africa are an enormous number. They're comparable to the slave narratives, the so-called slave narratives that have been written about individuals in North America, uh, which is just uh, not normally known, is that in all these cases, the people that we look on in West Africa, and in this sense, Saeed is an exception, in virtually all cases of individuals who end up in slavery, 
We can follow them from before they were a slave, and we can identify them after they are no longer a slave. And so that the focus on slave and slavery in itself misses an extremely important dimension of the whole history of the institution of slavery. That is, that people are people. And one of the problems, as we all know, about the history of slavery, and particularly of the enslavement of Africans, is the racism that has followed and has generated and persists to the modern world. And one reason that racism persists is because being black is being associated with slavery. And so the focus on biography is very definitely intended to try to counteract that, and to go beyond it so that we see actually real people. A second uh, dimension, uh, something I want you to take away from this, this particular story, is that while it's unusual, the fact that he was uh, the son of an, an important general, the fact that he crossed the Sahara and not the Atlantic, the fact that he went on pilgrimage, uh, that he learned all these languages. Yes, this is all exceptional. This is all unusual. But the types of adjustment that so many people had to make uh, because of enslavement and because of forced migration and forced uh, displacement from places of origin uh, really hides the fact that many, many people had to make similar types of adjustments that this man had to make. In many cases, they weren't as lucky to be connected with such high-profile individuals, uh, and in that sense, it's harder to follow them, but it's not always impossible. We have many, many other examples that we've been working on uh, which actually show the lives of people, the adjustments they made, uh, the ways they work within a system of slavery, of slave society, that goes against the stereotypes of slavery and of slave society. For one thing, while they individuals suffered violence, and oppression and exploitation, individuals also found ways to adjust, to manipulate the system, to work within the system, and therefore um, to make contributions to society in ways that uh, slave studies in a stereotypical way doesn't like to recognize. We like to talk about resistance. We like to talk about uh, cultural autonomy. But what we don't often like to, to talk about is how complex societies were in the Americas, in Africa, uh, in the Muslim world, and indeed in Europe, how complex they were and how multicultural they were throughout this whole period. And hence, to be a slave in the Americas, for example, didn't mean necessarily that you were on a sugar plantation, although many people were. And many people died early, young, and they don't leave any biographies. They don't leave any autobiographies. The, the people that do leave those autobiographies and biographical accounts, such as Saeed, allow us to go beyond the stereotype view of slavery and see another type of world. And it makes us understand uh, the, 
the tragedy that the racism that has come out of that history persists to this day. And it's really that racism and its on lingering effects, which is really the dangerous dimension of the history of slavery. It's not the history of slavery itself, because those people are all dead. They, it happened. It wasn't pretty. It happened. It's what's terrible is that generations later, people still suffer as if they have something to do with that period. And since the United Nations has declared slavery a crime against humanity, and since the discussion of issues of reparations, and these things are issues that are not going to go away, it's important that we have a much clearer idea of what life was like during this area in its varied forms and its varied ways, so that we appreciate better the political decisions we have to make today in terms of combating racism and dealing with issues of reparations. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.